CB On Air, cutting edge conversations with those in the central banking community. Hello, I'm Dan Hinge, news editor at Central Banking, and you're listening to CB On Air. We're on episode three of our tour of post-crisis central banking, and this week we're going to turn our attention to monetary policy. Yale's Andrew Metric joins us once again to talk through the issues. Hello again, Andrew. Hello. So uh, one thing we learned from the crisis is that, uh, as you've said in previous episodes, more things than just cash can behave in a sort of money-like way. Um, So how are new forms of money and market-based finance impacting the way central banks go about setting monetary policy? Well, I would say that that it's much more now of an intellectual effect in the way that some central bankers are thinking about it than it actually is an instrumental effect in the way that they're setting it yet. And in part, it's because the, the full range of thinking has not yet caught up to our intuition of what some of the problems are. So, for example, I think, you know, we've known for a long time that effectively monetary policy involves uh, uh, exchanging one form of safe asset for another. If what a central bank is doing is buying government securities, then what it can affect is the, the relative price of, 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 for example, currency and government securities, since that's what it's buying and selling. But it can't affect the relative price of the full collection of safe assets, which includes both currency and government securities, as against everything else in the market. So it is almost as though if we were in the United States exchanging dollar bills for $100 bills as part of our monetary policy, it's not going to do all that much for overall value of money, um, since they are substitutes for each other. And I think what we learned in the years leading up to the crisis is in how in many, many applications, uh, government securities, safe government securities, can be even more money-like than money itself, uh, since it is easier to use a large treasury uh, security, for example, in the United States as collateral for something than it is to move the cash around. So the, 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 the intellectual understanding that now exists that we need different, we need some additional instruments uh, and that a lot of the things that we see being created and traded challenge the typical way we do monetary policy, um, that's led to a whole lot of thinking. So you can see groups at central banks that are focused on short-term money markets, uh, on, on money instruments, groups that perhaps didn't even exist before that are following very carefully things like the GC repo rate in markets or other forms of things that we might call the convenience yield. But we're still a ways away, certainly under the mandate of many central banks, for being able to manipulate those things in any effective way. So uh, again, like many of the things that we've discussed in in past episodes, this is a place where I'm very very, uh, happy to see thinking having really advanced um, and and, uh, optimistic that the tools can eventually catch up with the thinking but still sit here today thinking that the job is unfinished. Would it help central banks' task in, in being able to influence those markets if uh, non-banks were given access to central bank facilities? Well, I have a somewhat radical view on, all of, on, on, on a lot of these type of emergency facilities uh, or, 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 or things like having a discount window that was open to um, non-banks or having some kind of standing guarantee authority, which is, I think, that uh, all of these things should be available and open all the time, but just at a very high price. So we think that the discount window 
uh, and uh, generally having something like a discount window at a central bank is a good thing and that it should always be there. And there's just some penalty rate. And the central bank has a policy of fooling around with that penalty rate uh, in, in an effort to keep things stable. And we think that's a very good idea. But for some reason, we limit that just to banks and we limit it just to lending. Whereas what we know is that in a crisis, uh, a lot of other things become necessary. I think if you start with the recognition that the taxpayers, uh, through the government, collectively own the tail risk of something very, very bad happening in the financial system, if you start with that assumption and realize there's no way to run away from it, it seems to me that we should be designing things and having those things at the very least able to be stood up really quickly without the need to have uh, a, a, a massive legislative uh, uh, round to go through to get it done. Those necessary steps really are a very big challenge in a crisis itself. And I think just like you really wouldn't want some kind of vote of the legislature to authorize the fire department to come to my house, even if I caused the fire to start in my house, somehow we think that the fire department should be able to make those decisions on their own. So in terms of having facilities for non-banks, I think it would be useful to have something that was a standing facility, perhaps with a very, very high penalty rate, um, and to give the central banks the ability to manipulate the size of that facility, the collateral it would take, and the, uh, and the size of the penalty, uh, and to do that so as to be able to react quickly in an emergency. So turning to another major monetary policy to come out of the crisis, um, quantitative easing. How does that uh, impact domestic and global financial markets? Bit of a big question. Well, I think we've, we've uh, taken a very big additional step towards uh, uh, both exchanging different types of safe assets for each other and in some cases a willingness to exchange uh, to exchange uh, uh, safe assets for things that are privately produced safe assets, but perhaps uh, uh, not in the full class uh, of safe assets that the, that the government ordinarily provides. So broadly speaking, QE and a lot of the thinking and the operational activity that have gone on around it, I think are very important additions to the toolkit of central banks, not just for dealing with a zero lower bound, uh, but also for how just in regular times, they might be able to play with more than just the shortest part of the yield curve and more than just the trade-off between currency and, sh- and government securities. And um, another issue that seems to be uh, building up or a potential issue is the, the growing debt around the world. Is that... Do you see that as a problem for monetary policymakers um, as well as financial regulators? Well, certainly, cer- certainly, this is the number one issue that financial stability specialists within central banks need to be paying attention to. Um, we don't really know a whole lot about the precursors of financial crises, except that they are always preceded by buildups of debt. Um, and uh, to the best of our ability to tell, it's often short-term debt and debt that is associated with housing. And so when you see those things happening, it's a major concern on the financial stability side. 
Not every time there is a big buildup in debt does it end in a crisis. And that's, of course, the challenge. It's the same type of challenge central bankers face uh, in, in any kind of credit boom in that not every credit boom leads to a crash. But it is, it is certainly the most important thing for central banks to be paying attention to on the financial stability side. And the current levels are, of course, worrying. And do you view debt as a constraint on monetary policy in the sense that it might be harder to raise interest rates um, if, if debts are very high? Well, I, to me, the bigger concern is, is the constraint that it places on fiscal policy. So, so yes, uh, uh, we would have a concern that if interest rates go up, then the, the overall interest burden on debtors goes up. And, and that has, of course, standard ways of thinking that we, we would have a, uh, a problem and that would go through the macro economy. And I think they're, they're standard because I think we understand them well and our models get them, get, have a pretty good idea of what happens. Uh, to me, the larger concern outside of just the instability that it creates is when it is government debt, when it is public debt, it provides us with a whole lot less room for for fiscal activity, particularly if we need that fiscal activity either in a financial crisis or in a garden variety recession. Okay, um, and lastly, it it feels a little a bit a little bit as though we've kind of got a better understanding of economics. We have a slightly better understanding of all the things that can go wrong and and the challenges facing us, such as uh, geopolitics at the moment. Um, are central banks better able to deal with uncertainty, and, and how can they go about doing that? Well, I think that the, the what central banks have learned about in dealing with uncertainty on the monetary policy side is that uh, it's very important for the credibility of a central bank that they not be seen as uh, overreacting to things, that central banks uh, develop credibility by, by um, particularly today, signaling the markets what they plan to do, giving the markets an idea of what kind of information they're looking for to drive some of their future decisions, and then not overreacting. Because a, a overreaction on the monetary policy side that needs to be reversed ends up really reducing confidence and the credibility of the central bank. So in that respect, I, I think those were, have been important lessons. They've been hard-worn lessons over time, and, and uh, central bankers are aware of them. A challenge, however, is that on the financial stability side, it's sometimes overreaction is necessary. Sometimes what you're really trying to do is to stop a, a, a panic, a liquidity type of panic, before it overwhelms your ability to fight it. And so you need to do things that, that nip those types of, of, of activities in the bud. And it might require a little bit of an overreaction. This is, I think, an, an organizational challenge for central banks who, who I have correctly learned the lesson of dealing with uncertainty with, with um, kind of slow and deliberate movements on the monetary policy side, but might need to take stronger reactions on the financial stability side. And so uh, we're, we're, like many other things in financial stability policy, still at the early stages of learning how to manage that. In a sense, it feels like that might require another crisis for us to uh, get some experience putting these tools into into effect. I certainly hope it doesn't take that. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right, Andrew, thanks very much. You're welcome. <laughs> <laughs>